This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about Quarter. One, Quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. I'm also excited to announce our newest sponsor, Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours, and all from those that know it best. Now, I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash value hive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash value hive. This week, we've got the one and only Sleepwell Capital on the show today. Sleepwell, generalist investor, uh, very popular on Twitter. If you don't follow him, you should. You're missing out on some good content. Um, we'll make sure to link his Twitter bio in the notes below. We've got a wide-ranging conversation today going from talking about conviction and how conviction is the raw material of long-term investing. We'll discuss uh, serial acquirers as ignored gems in markets, as well as Berkshire. And we will, of course, discuss Spotify. We can't have sleep well on without something about Spotify. So uh, People look at that. Yeah. <laughs> before, before we dive in, what's the name or what's the idea behind the name sleep well? And then how did you get started investing? Yeah, sure. And, and thanks for having me, Brandon. I'm a very big fan of the podcast, so it's a, it's a big honor. Thank you. The name actually comes from a Buffett quote originally. Um, so I think it was in, back in the 80s that uh, somewhere Buffett said that he slept well knowing millions of people would grow a beard overnight and wake up tomorrow having to shave. He owned Gillette shares back then. So that was kind of of explaining uh, the, the investment pieces in a, in a funny little, you know, witty way that he that he tends to to do and i don't know that the, that sleep well phrase kind of stuck with me and it's kind of grown in, over time i'm also a pretty big sleep enthusiast I, I think it's there's a lot of benefits to you know getting getting your sleep and and in terms of health and and um you know just well-being in in, in general so when i started using twitter and decided to make my own account i decided to go with that name it just seemed like very natural that it's I think it's grown even more over over time on me so 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, in, the, in terms of my background, so I'm traditionally I'm uh, I'm an engineering by by training uh, school and uh, to a technical school. While I was at school is when I discovered the, the stock market and started playing around uh, a little bit. I think I pretty much became fascinated by it as as, as many people right as soon as you start doing it right. Of course, I didn't yeah. know much back then. But pretty quickly realized I wanted to pursue a career in the in the finance industry. So I was able to get a job in in one of the large banks. First, I started in wealth management. So that was more of kind of a relationship management slash sales job. But it was a good introduction to you know all the different asset classes, etc. And I knew that I wanted to do something much more related to the investment side of things, and you know analytical and looking at companies, et cetera. So an opportunity opened up on the, on the fixed income and credit team, which I took, I thought it was, it wasn't really part of my plan, but I thought it was interesting. So I, I went for it and spent a few years doing that. And eventually I moved over to sell-side equity research where I was at more, most recently, uh, spent a couple of years there. And now I'm taking a little bit of time off while I transition to my next role where I'm going to be working as a generalist on the buy side. It's awesome. You, in uh, one of your Substack articles, you fleshed out the benefits of, of working in fixed income. And I had um, Jeremy Raper, um, who is another you know great, great Twitter resource. He started as a yeah. fixed income guy, I believe, or you know, some, someone on the credit side. And just the lessons that he learned and kind of the mentality he has from that fixed income uh, environment. Can you just discuss, and you, you, you mentioned three of them in kind of one of your Substack articles there, but the, the, the importance and the lessons you took from your time as a fixed income analyst? Yeah, for sure. So in that article, I talk about sort of three big picture lessons that equity investors can apply from the fixed income world. So the first one is to never forget about the downside. You know, this is obviously very simple. Just traditionally, when you look at a credit instrument, the first question you always have to ask yourself is, am I going to get my money back, right? So as a, as a bond analyst, you'll, you're always going to think for, by its very own nature, what can go wrong here, right? So you spend a lot of time thinking about, about the risks, um, you know, am I comfortable enough to be lending money to this company? You know, you do some sort of stress testing, think about different scenarios, et cetera. Whereas obviously anyone that spent most of their time thinking about uh, equities, it's just very natural to, to go, you know, to start uh, by asking yourself like what could go right, right? which is exactly the, the opposite, right? It's, it's a much more optimistic perspective that you're, that you're taking. So it's, that's one way to say that it's it's always healthy to have that that balanced view and and just don't forget about the things that that can go wrong because it's obviously an uncertain world out there so we have to take that into into consideration the second topic that i that i touch on is one that i think it's it's fascinating um i, I don't think i've done enough work on it but basically it's it's the importance of of reflexivity so this was popularized by, by George Soros, and essentially it means that the consensus perception on something can actually alter its very own reality, right? So there's some circular aspect uh, to that, right? And in bond markets, that's actually very relevant because if 
if the lenders think that a company won't be able to pay its debts, mm -hmm. uh, the market will actually react and the bonds will fall ice and then the credit spreads will will widen. And by you know that very perception, but on itself, will make it much harder for the company to be able to 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 pay to pay its debts, or at least it's going to refinance at a much at a much higher right. And in some ways, this is kind of what happened to to Lehman and some of the large banks in the in the crisis because they were being financed by by you know commercial short-term loans that were rolling you know every every week or every two weeks or something like that and all of a sudden the lenders thought this wasn't a good credit and they decided they were going to roll over and and obviously that had all sorts of, of different implications um, to the downside right so I think one of the one of the take takeaways from from that is to respect you know what the market is is telling you and I'll think about what market sentiment means and 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 you know I think it it taught me to to because the traditional value investing school says to almost don't pay attention to to the market sometimes like you know the market is is your servant and stuff like that like you can have you you have to take advantage of the prices etc but but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that and there's times where you really have to be careful when when prices uh, turn around because that very action could in itself alter the the reality and of the outcome right and the third one that i that i mentioned was talking about leverage because i think it's a tip that gets probably thrown around a lot and and it uh, been spent a lot a lot of time at, you know on the on the credit side uh, there's it, it's hard to really grasp what really matters in 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 terms of of uh, of leverage, right? I think leverage in itself doesn't is not really what's what gets a company in 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 trouble. What really is more the, the more relevant uh, metric is is liquidity, right? And the ability to meet your short term obligations, right? So things like looking at at the maturity wall, right? And and there's tons of companies that that manage this um, on a you know very very intelligently. There is one that that comes to mind, uh, TransTime. These are considered highly leveraged companies, you know, quote unquote, but they they manage you know those uh, th those those staggered uh, maturities and match them to their to their you know certainly predictable cash flows that they that they have. So that's kind of a nuance there when when people look at and, and quote, you know, oh, this company has a lot of debt. It's, I think uh, that it's important to understand kind of what's going on under under the hood, because, you know, it's not the same if, if your bond is due in, in one or two years versus if you have that same amount of debt sort of staggered over the next 10 years, right? Did your time as a fixed income analyst, did it make you more pessimistic uh, by nature? And then do you think that over time, as you, as you venture away from, you know, that fixed income analyst role, shifting more to the general generalist equity side, that you find yourself becoming more optimistic? And then have you thought about like how you kind of marry those two personalities? Yeah, I think, I don't know if it made me more pessimistic per se, but I think it did give me a more, you know, balanced way to look at the world, right? It's just sort of one additional toolkit that I have as a as an equity analyst. And I think, for example, there's there's names in my portfolio that I probably wouldn't own if I hadn't spent enough time on on the fixed income side. And hmm. and at some point I looked at some of the bonds. For example, Charter is one where where at at first I was looking at it from the 
from the credit perspective. And eventually I got pretty comfortable with, with how they, they managed that side. And I thought the equity was cheap. So that's, that's, that's one example. And yeah, so again, I think it's just, it just made me more, well, more balanced. I think I'm an optimist by, you know, by my, by my nature, but I, like to think that I that I that I'm spending enough time thinking about the the risks of a of, of a company and I'm and I like you know that sort of intellectual challenge. I think some people it may not come as natural to them. Um, there may be some you know some psychological block that that you may have from having to spend so much time thinking about what could go wrong in an investment, but it's obviously part of the of the process, right? So what made you after the fixed income side, what made you quit your job and, and strike out on, on this new, this new endeavor? Uh, the, the most recent one, right. Uh, yeah. From the sell side to, yep. yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, more, more, most recently I was at, at the sell side, spent a, a couple of years there was covering industrials. It was, it was a great experience. I, I learned a ton and it was a very, wide ranging, um, you know, coverage in the different subsectors, et cetera, almost to the point where I was like a quasi generalist within industries because they end, they end up being in so many different verticals and, you know, doing all different kinds of products, et cetera. So it was an, it was an excellent experience. I always knew that I wanted to be at the buy side eventually. And it was the timing when I, when I quit my job was a little bit crazy I'll say because I hadn't I hadn't landed a, officially at my next role but I don't know if I don't know if we had we followed each other back then but uh around six months ago kind of a yeah it's a crazy story but I decided to to tweet out my my resume and I made you know like an anonymous version of it yeah and it was it was pretty I was blown away like I had probably 30, 40 people reaching out to me directly wow. asking that, asking me, yeah, like, Hey, let's, let's, let's have a chat, um, either to help like directly or to put me in touch with someone or they were actually hiring. Right. So yeah. it was, yeah, it just, that, that blew me away. So I had began a process of where I, you know, started talking to a couple of places that I thought were, were really interesting. And at the same time, I think the two other factors that, that came into play was one, I had been working on my Substack for for some for some time, and I was also surprised by how much traction that was getting. And I, I I was at a point where I thought, you know, if 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 I really have to, I could probably pursue this as a as a backup plan if nothing if nothing works out. And mm-hmm. I I think I'd, I I you know I'll at least be able to to pay the bills if I work hard enough. And the third, the third thing that was that was going on is that I was about to start recording an album. Uh, I'm also a, a musician, and we can talk a little bit about Ooh, uh, that yeah. as well, which makes uh, it's it also ties to to my original Spotify investment in in, in some ways. But yeah, that was going to take me at least a month, and I couldn't take that time off work. So it was kind of a timing thing that I just said, you know, I'm just afraid I'll I'll take some t- some time off to do to do this and then travel a little bit and. Uh, after a couple of months, it it ended up working out with with one of the funds that I was most interested in, honestly. And and yeah, I'll be that. That's basically where where I'm going to be going next. That's pretty sweet. That's just I love hearing stories about people using Twitter for good like that and finding it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Finding finding it keeps surprising me. 
I'm yeah. sure it has to you as well. Like, yeah. Oh, I mean, it has, it has totally. I mean, from a, from a product perspective, it's the people that you can talk to and just DM and, and some of the pedigrees of, of some of these people. It's, I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, Oh, you, sure. you mentioned music. Now I, I'm a big music fan. So I have to ask what, what type of genre, what type of instrument, what album is it? Yeah. So I, I play guitar and I, and I sing the, it's in, it's in Spanish, by the way, oh, <laughs> I'm a native nice. Spanish speaker. Yeah. Yeah. So I say it's, it's more on the kind of alternative indie um, genre. You know, I have all sorts of different influences a lot of them in spanish but in, in english i'd say it's it's probably you know i've listened to a lot of uh national cat for cutie uh i'm a big john mayer fan like guitar as well i guess those those three are are a pretty decent comparison to kind of what the what kind of sound i was trying to to to, to get um, but yeah it was a it was a great process I, I learned a ton so when's the album dropping or has it already dropped it will it will drop this year uh, yes, it's uh, well. Yeah, I'll have a couple a couple singles, and uh, probably summer, late summer, the the album will be out. Well, that's exciting. You got it. You got to post. Yeah. That. Is it? Is it? Is it? Yeah, I think. Well, I is yeah. that? Is that? Is that the name? No, no, <laughs> no, no. I, I, I can't reveal reveal it yet. But um, but yeah, yeah I think I'll I think I'll post it by by then. <laughs> Fantastic. Let's let's pivot to your research process and, and, and how you examine ideas. And we'll, 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 we'll take it from a top-down perspective before diving into our discussion on conviction, which I think is going to be, is going to be pretty, pretty important. Um, when, when you're looking at the landscape of available ideas, how do you start to filter and, and, and kind of disseminate what looks interesting versus what doesn't? Yeah. So I, I don't have any, you know, official screening tools. I know a lot of people do, but I, for, for me, I just, you know, I keep my eyes open and obviously Twitter is a great resource, but I, I'm surprised by the, um, the amount of names that I've literally just come across in, you know, just walking and, you know, obviously I know I've, I've seen U-Haul trucks, you know, the past 10 years since I moved to the yeah. U.S. I've, I've skied in, in Vail Resorts, uh, I use Spotify, like all that stuff is, it just, I think that's one of the best. It's very like Peter Lynch wise, right? I was like, just about to say, very Peter Lynch. Think, right? Uh, and I think that's obviously one of the best ways, at least to me personally. I think the one question I do kind of ask myself when I'm starting or deciding to look at a, at a company or an industry is if, if this is something that I'm going to enjoy learning about and, and following, right? I think it's, it's such a simple filter, but I don't know. And I've, I think I probably learned this maybe in the last year. Like I, I hadn't really thought about this before, but it just, I realized I was having a lot more fun looking at some of these names that, that, you know, that made me so interested in, in learning about the company. And, you know, it just didn't feel like work at all. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it reminds me of, of, a there's a really good Naval quote um, that he says, you should find something that feels like play to you and work to others. And you'll be, you know, just orders of magnitude ahead of them. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think that's actually a very powerful thing to, to keep in mind. And uh, yeah, so I'd say that's probably like my, my, my biggest, my biggest filter in terms of, in terms of process, I think, first of all, it, it depends how much I know about the industry. Right. And Many times I'll be, you know, trying to learn about a, a new industry and 
that process is very different than learning about a company in an industry that you're already familiar with, right? Naturally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for to, to getting, you know, caught up with, with an industry, I think I'll, there's nothing unique that I do. It's just what most people will do reading. I think primers are, are really good to actually get you, get you started. That's one place where I think equity research, you know, the sales side actually adds a, a ton of value there. Um, you know, talking to talking to industry people. Obviously, there's a lot of good blogs and newsletters around there on, on any industry that you want to find. Books as well. Podcasts have become a really good resource for me. Just mm-hmm. searching, you know, just searching about a company in in, in Spotify or whatever podcast player you use, you'll, you'll be surprised how much. You, sometimes you'll find five interviews of of either company insiders or people pitching stock things like that are. Are, are super helpful. So I think for me, the, the first step is, is really to understand the, the industry landscape, the, the economics, the, com- the competition, uh, sort of the value chain and the, what, who the suppliers are, who the customers are. And once, you know, once, I, once I get comfortable with that, I, I would have obviously already come across many of the companies within that industry. So you know, maybe originally I was interested already in one of those companies and, and I'll start to look at it more, more closely, but it really comes down to understanding those, those, those big questions, right? And, and, and what the big value drivers are going to be for, uh, for, for a company. Yeah, the industry primers are things that I don't necessarily go to at first, but I'm, I'm starting to try to get more primers under my belt because, I mean, you can, like you said, you can spend you know, 90, 120 pages, you know, sometimes and just spend an afternoon and you're up to speed on like a lot of the information you need for, for some of these industries. And it's, it's a fantastic resource. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm a slow learner, I think as well, which it, it also results in being kind of a slow buyer. You mm-hmm. know, some of my more bigger, bigger positions have taken me, I don't know, five, six years to build up sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's just what, what works for me, I guess. Now, when you say that you're a slow learner, do you ever feel pressured to buy something quicker, even if you're not all the way there yet? Maybe because it's price or, you know, price price for two reasons. Like maybe it's falling and it's getting more attractive or maybe it's rising and there's there's FOMO coming in. I think I think I used to be more impulsive in that sense. If that's, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but I've, I, I feel like I've become a little more strict on that where, and, and again, this is one of those very, very personal thing where you, you, you're trying almost not to fool yourself into it, right? But I've be, I, I feel like I've become better in knowing when I've gone above a certain bar where I, where I can say, you know, I can make this, I can, I can have a starter position here where it's probably going to be, you know, one, two, one to 2% where I feel already comfortable enough with some you know decent uh, with with some decent amount of confidence in terms of valuation and, and some of the risks and again as i as i already as i already own that stock i'll probably keep you know doing the doing the work and, and really getting to that level where where i'm i'm confident enough to make it a sizable position and one thing that's helped me kind of combat that what's that feeling of fomo is if, if the opportunity truly is great, it, it doesn't matter if you buy it today or if you buy it 
you know, a week, three weeks from now, theoretically, right? You know, granted there's, yeah. you know, God forbid a company gets acquired in the time you're trying to do yeah. work and, you know, the, 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 the entire IRR, IRR is compressed. But in general, right, if you're trying to find these world-beating companies at great prices, then you should be underwriting for IRRs where within a range of, of, of values as you accumulate knowledge and, and, and the position, the, yeah. the IRR still So that range sort of tight, tightens up, right, in, in theory, as you, learn, yep. as, as you learn more. And, you know, I, I just thought about a, an actually a really good recent example is, is Tencent Music. I mean, I've, I understand yeah. the, the core music streaming business and, and you know, sort of the, that, that industry backdrop but where i have a where i had a pause was on the on the china aspect in terms of you know what are really some of the risks here and am i comfortable owning owning this name it's this is it's a different market right not only from the perspective of of, of you know some of the government risk and and whatever but i'm not an expert on chinese consumers and and, and things like that so I, it was ten, it was tempting because it's, I think it's fallen probably 80% since the highest. It's, it's down, uh, and, it's bouncing um, around all time lows. It's like 650 a share. Yeah. And, and I thought about it, like it crossed, it crossed my mind and I looked into it a little bit, but I just said, you know, it's, I'm not comfortable with the risks and it's, it could turn out really well. I know smart people who've, who've, who've started buying that, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, it passed for me. That's, that's been my consensus with China in general. I mean, there might be instruments where I'll, I'll, I'll tactically trade it, but from an investment perspective, I tend to ask myself, well, like what, what's the hurdle rate? What's the discount rate I need to apply here? And I end up getting, and this is, you know, for, because I have a lot of, you know, blind spots in China, but for me, it's like, unless it's, unless it's priced literally to bankruptcy and the single digit PEs, it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem necessary to, to take on yeah. that risk. But again, I could, I, I could be leaving so much money on the table. Like who knows you buy 10 yeah. music at like less than 20 times current earnings. Like maybe you do really well. Who knows? Yeah. I, I don't mind missing out on, on those opportunities as long as I'm, you know, I just have that process in place and framework where I say, you know, I'm just, I just wasn't comfortable with the risks. And, and I think I've become pretty used to that by now. Let's dive into conviction. And yeah. you you mentioned in the Substack post again, which is 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 a fantastic read. It you you say conviction is the raw material of long-term investing, which is kind of an elegant way to an elegant way to say it. To start this conversation first, how do you define conviction? And then we can dive into the we can dive into the nuances there. Yeah, sure. So to to me, my own definition of investing conviction is a differentiated and confident opinion on a company's long-term prospects achieved after acquiring the required knowledge while being comfortable with the risks. That's kind of what I came up with. And it, there's, there's a lot more to that. There's like a lot packed into, into there. Right. And I think if, if we sort of break it down, uh, you know, word by, by word. So I start out by saying it has to be differentiated, right? That means mm. You have to you have to understand what the consensus is, and by definition, if, if if you have if you have a view on something long term in terms of how you think it's it's going to play out, but the market thinks wise, you can profit from that technically, right? So that's yeah. kind of where the differentiated view comes from. It needs to be confident enough, right? Because you're gonna you're gonna be putting money on that, and and obviously you need to build the confidence 
to, to get there. And that comes after you acquire the required knowledge, which is, you know, all the research work that we've, that we've been discussing and really, you know, being kind of knowing yourself in terms of when you've reached that level. But at the same time, you really have to be comfortable with what the risks are and, and how those are mitigated. Right. So I think that's, that's kind of the way that I, that I think about it and lay it out on, on that piece. The first question I have there is, and this this is one that I like to ask a bunch of people that I talk to is, how do you know when when you've reached that research threshold where like you know enough to buy a position, and then does that does that kind of change with with a business where you know again to use kind of the the Buffett example where he's sitting in the bathtub and he's been thinking about, um, you know he's been he's been thinking about. Bank of America or banks his whole life, and he just like kind of puts these these two together and and comes to this monster thesis um, that looks like it doesn't take a while, but it's ended up taking his whole life. So how do you how do you think about like knowing when enough information is enough? Yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely very very hard, and and that's in in some ways that's what I what I, I like to remind myself that, that I'm a slow learner because it does really take a lot of time to, you know, to build that, that circle of, of, of competence, right? I think it, it's a process that can probably take years in, in, for, some, for some companies, right? So it, at the end of the day, it's it really about, you know, knowing yourself and, and being honest with, your, with yourself and sort of asking the, the Asking yourself the right questions and 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 being able to to say yes, I feel like I'm I'm at that I'm at that place. It's it's almost like a gut feeling, right? Yeah. But um, but but yeah, I I, I don't know. I think once once you put the, the work in for a sufficient amount of time, uh, which and can be can be months to to years, even sometimes, you'll you'll get to a point where where you know you you feel like you'll be reading, you still read a ton about the company and the industry. And maybe you feel like you're not really learning that much anymore. You're just you almost understand, you know, every concept, et cetera, where you're a point like, okay, I'm, I'm actually pretty, pretty well not knowledged and in, in, in versed in, in this topic. Right. And if, if, if with that, you can, you can build a long-term view of what that means for, for that company and have thought about the risks. That's, that's kind of, how I, how I think about it. And when thinking about that question, one of the ways that I kind of score my, you know, am I, am I asking enough questions? Have I gotten to that point enough? There's, there's ways that I've kind of internally scored myself on improving that process. And one of them is just like the velocity at which I get to the right questions. And so if I'm increasing the velocity of getting to those questions, then I know that I'm actually improving this process. Um, because I think it's, I think at the end of the day, right, it's, you have to find the main drivers and it's usually like one to three things that, that, that matter. And the, that evolution of learning is actually then getting to those incrementally faster each time we're now, instead of, you know, saying, Oh, I'm taking months to do this. It's like, Hey, look, I looked at this. And thought about it for a week, and I think I'm asking the right questions, and I think the answers I'm getting are indicative of an opportunity to make some money. Yeah, you make uh, an, an excellent point in terms of of the those uh, those main drivers, right? Because I think I've, for for most for most investments, 
it's really two, three, maybe four things that are going to drive the outcome on a, on a long-term basis. And kind of, kind of ironically, that's almost the last place you arrive at after doing, you know, all the work that's, that, that's required. It takes, it takes you sort of sifting through all that noise and information, you know, kind of overflow to really pick that signal in terms of, okay, these are the, the three things that I focus on and, and answer those, those, those questions. And I think it, it also applies to the risks. You know, I think there's, there's a point where you've probably thought about as many risks as you can uh, in terms of, a, of an investment. There's obviously always, you know, unknown unknowns, what they, what they call, but at least the known unknowns, you've, you've probably thought about and enough where where you get to that uh, to that that level right yeah and then if you can get to those risks and 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 know at least to yourself that you've asked the most important questions about the risks and if you can do that quicker over time not not just to save time but just because you're getting smarter then i think you i mean you can the yeah. the amount of ideas that you can then sift through at that point in time give you give you such an advantage yeah, that's the great thing, right? All of this technically compounds. And as you, like, if you're getting started out and, and you're starting to learn about one industry or, or two, that's, that's going to take time. But my, my guess, probably the third or, or by the third or fourth one, you'll have a pretty decent sort of pattern recognition in place where you can start, you know, borrowing things from one another and, and get to conclusions a little bit, a little bit quicker, which, as you said, it's, I think you mentioned Buffett, but obviously he's incredibly good at this. And, mm -hmm. and um, I mean, it speaks, his track record speaks for itself. And he also knows where not to, to go, right? Just, yeah. Which is kind of part of it as well. If I took the opposite approach to this essay and, and, and I had the mentality where my underlying thought is conviction is highly overrated and it's really just about survival, where where would I be wrong in that in that logic? Well, I think first I'll, I'll I'll say that the the piece was in in many ways, you know, it was a it was a highly personal piece. So it it, it was more of a journal entry in some ways for for me yeah. than me trying to tell people like this is the way to do it, right? Like right. I know some people it resonated with and they reached out to me and, and we talked about it, et cetera, but I'm not, I'm not trying to school anyone on, on this. I'm just, you know, talking about how, what works for me and this may change in the, I don't know, in the next three or four years. I'm just at this moment, this is kind of how I, how I think about it in terms of conviction generally, which I think gets, gets discussed uh, a lot. Actually that the piece originally came from, from a tweet um, I think Phoenix Value tweeted out something on conviction and, and he, I was kind of inspired by it to, to, to write something on it because I thought no one has really talked about this that much. And what, what I think gets confused sometimes with, with conviction is, is overconfidence, right? Yeah. And that's where, that's where I think, you know, there's, there's a couple of, of points to make there, right? The first is part of, part of having conviction is, is also balancing it with, with the, the fact that you have to be humble, right? And, and you have to be willing to admit when you're, when you're wrong because conviction doesn't mean that you're gonna be right 100% of the time. Uh, I think we all know that even the best investors are right maybe 60, maybe as high as 70% of, of, of the time, but I mean- 70% is world class. If you're, yeah, that's, that's like, yeah, 
maybe Buffett has has gotten there because I don't think he's gotten like any crazy. His his track on not losing money is actually pretty good. Um, if you if if you read it, but but yeah, he's obviously just on another uh, on another from another planet in that in in that sense. But yeah, like we're we're really striving for better than than fifty, I would say, right? So with that in context, I think you have to reflect that in portfolio sizing, right? And you know that's gonna come to to what what you're comfortable with. And for some people, it may be five to seven percent for others mm -hmm. it may be 10 for others it may be it may be 20 i think that's kind of where i'm at at this at this moment but it, this is something that i keep trying to you know push and 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 learn more about and see what works best i mean we know for others it's it's as it's above 30 right mm -hmm. um i mean there's there's a couple of big names i can think of that that had 30 percent plus positions in in, in back right and and um there's interestingly some of them came back from it, but I guess they had, you know, say it was a big mistake for them, but and they should have probably sized it accordingly. But they 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 probably thought a, a lot about what meant having such a big position and how they would react to, to something like that blowing up, right? So, you know, it's one of those things that because it's it's very natural, right? Like you people, especially in a place like like Twitter, like there's a lot of calling out out and yeah. i try to stay away from that like it's it's just so unhealthy to call out someone when they're when they're wrong and uninvested like we're all going to be wrong eventually so yeah. I, I think there's absolutely no no point to that right but uh but yeah i guess that's my long way of, of, of saying is you know you have to be you have to be humble you have to understand that you'll be wrong and and you have to be you know conservative in in terms of, of sizing that accordingly to what looks for you you mentioned Twitter, which made me think of a couple things. The first one, I, I completely agree this idea of, you know, d whether it's dunking on somebody for an incorrect thesis or, or, you know, feeling the need to explain to somebody why they're, why they're wrong. Um, Twitter, Twitter's a great place. Like if, like you could take any company that would have the most bullish future of all time and you just tweet it out, Hey, I, I'm pretty bullish on this company and you get 12 replies and six dms yeah. saying these crazy things yeah. you would have never thought of like oh what well, did you think about this 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 and this and it's you know it's it's there's 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 so many ways that everything can go wrong um but the other thing on twitter too is i see a lot of i see a lot of people and and sometimes i'm guilty of this myself maybe subconsciously is is becoming a cheerleader for the stocks that i either own or for the stocks that i'm researching that i'm that i'm particularly bullish on and i don't know if it's it's a net it's 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 a net gain to be a cheerleader of the stock or a net detractor to 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 kind of be a cheerleader because when i think about conviction like the more i think about it it's not conviction in the company per se but it's conviction in your underlying assumptions about the future of the world yeah. and then how that company fits into those assumptions that you make and then, For sure. you know, the final step is like, okay, well then is that company the best positioned to take advantage of that alternate reality you created for yourself? And so like, if there's a way to kind of detach the business that you're investing in from the core assumptions that I think you should have conviction in, then I'm, I get, I get a little more, um, I get a little more kind of okay with conviction because on the surface, I don't, I don't necessarily put too much value in conviction um, just as, just as a generality, but 
the more I think about it with like assumptions and stuff, I, it, it, it does resonate at that level. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I agree with you that it's, it's also important to not get to that point when talking about stocks on, on Twitter. And I think I've been guilty of it at points in time, especially when you're tweeting a lot about, about one company you own, et cetera. But you know, at the, at the same time, it's, at some point, one of those tweets is, is going to be wrong. And I think that's also a great lesson for, for me to just, you know, ad, ad, admit to my mistake and say, look, I was saying this and clearly I was, I was wrong. And, and that's, I think that's a great lesson to be learned down the, down the line as well. There were, there were four steps or I guess four blocks of this conviction framework you had in the post. Yeah. They were deep work which we covered earlier, what could go wrong, which yeah. we touched on your fixed income background, the most probable right. outcome, and then what's in the price. We haven't really discussed the last two. Um, so if you if you want, can you hint on, maybe just give us a 30,000 foot view on kind of most probable outcome and what's in the price, which the last one sounds like expectations type investing. Yeah, and then that and then, last one is, yeah. Yeah, and then just the final one about that, once you look at all four of those, like which which one of these do you think investors struggle with the most? Sure. So most, the most probable outcome is, you know, one way to think about it is kind of the base case view, right? After having done all the necessary work and, and thought about enough about those risks where you can start to uh, assign some sort of prob- probability to those risks playing out, you, you, you know, you, in some ways you've already probably started thinking about what does this steady state of, of or or most probable state of this company look like, right? So that's it. It it comes back to where you were saying in terms of of the assumptions, right? So think about what those value drivers are and what the inputs for those for, for those drivers, right? So that what do you have to assume, or what do you think is is going to happen according to to your knowledge and expectations, and what how does that you know play out in whatever time frame you have uh, in, in in front of you? Maybe maybe your disability quote unquote is, is uh, five years down the line for some other people might be 10 for others less but you know it's it's coming out coming up with with that uh, sort of yeah so m- most probable scenario and in, in, in terms of yeah like what does could this company be valued at in, in in that in that time frame now you have to tie that back to that last part in in terms of what's in the price that's again what the market is, is is implying at the moment and you're essentially trying to to look for a big discount in terms of of what you think that most probable outcome is worth today because you will see you know kind of the famous uh, saying that you have to skate to where the puck is is, is going to be right you have to yeah you have to also discount the the puck right and 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 see what that means for the price uh, for the price today right and compare that to 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 where where the market is offering you this this company at the moment, and that's essentially where you end up making a decision, right? And that's why I've been I've been shocked. It's you're always shocked when you look back, and I think it's easy to look back at we can call it you know like the 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 peak of the of the tech and 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 high growth hype where you know. SPACs were, were spinning out at crazy valuations. And it's it's so easy to look back and just say, you know, if you were to take an expectations investing approach, see what's in the price, see what's embedded. The 
the outcomes, not even the probabilities, but the outcomes that you would have to assume on some of those prices were unbelievable. And then, and then again, you have to go into the probabilities where it's like, okay, like if the company is X percent market cap, not only do I have to, not only do I have to assume that the future is going to look like this, but I have to assume at like an 85 to 90% confidence interval that, you know, this company is going to do it. And that assumption is going to be right at, 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 at that high of a confidence interval in such a yeah. fast changing industry with, with, you know, frontier tech, it's just, it's so easy to look back and, and, and be like, wow, like that was unbelievable. That was, yeah. And the, the thing is, it's not only that, which is a great point. It's the fact that besides from that one company, there might be nine others that are implying the exact same thing, which means yeah. that the market thinks they're all going to be winners. You know, I, I talked about this a couple of months ago or I, I tweeted out that, uh, that I, I, I don't like shorting. I don't, I don't shorts uh, in, in general. And, but it looks like a basket of, of uh, electric vehicle companies would, would play out pretty well if you found like the right, you know, structure uh, to, to, to place that trade. And the, yeah, I mean, the, again, the, what all these companies were, were implying uh, was basically that we're going to take over the, the entire auto market, right? So it just, it just made, made, made no sense to me, right? Um, I didn't do much. There wasn't much work behind that. It was just, you know, an observation that I, that I, that I had made. And especially on a market as ruthless as, as, uh, as you know, as auto OEMs, right? But let's but, go uh, back to yeah, conviction. A, well, let's, let's. Yeah, because you asking me what the, what the hardest. Right? Yeah. The hardest. Yeah. 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 That's a, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I, I think, I, I think it's step two and, and three, what, what people probably struggle with, uh, with, with the most, right? The first, I mean, the, 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 the deep work, I think most people can, can do that and do it right yeah yeah exactly that's pretty much commoditized this, these days but you know really taking the time because that's where you have to get most creative right these the, the second step of what could go wrong and the most probable outcome that's that's your interpretation of all this data dump that you had thrown at you after after the deep work where you have to sort of dumb that down and, and say okay what does this mean in terms of, of, you know, what are the biggest risks? What do I think is, is the probability that some of these risks uh, play out? Are they independent from each other? Or if one plays out, does the other one become more, more probable? And then mm -hmm. obviously understanding those drivers that we, that we talked about, like what are, what are really the three most important things for, for this company? And what does, what does this, you know, data that I that I just learned and and, and, and history and the backdrop, et cetera, tell me about what's most probably gonna happen in, in for in this company or in this industry. So I think that's really where where most people you know struggle to 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 you know to go through that noise and, and really pick up the, the the most important parts of that. Right. Mm -hmm. And just thinking about that last point, what's in the price, it made me uh, it made me remember our conversation on reflexivity and a great example of this is, is GameStop in a sense where if the price goes up to a certain point and you know, GameStop management, I think did this to some extent, but your share price gets so high that now you actually have optionality that can change the fundamentals of the company. And yeah. that's where I think things can get a little hairy because you have these embedded expectations that might be very optimistic. But then if you marry that with an aggressive momentum 
trend that's in your favor, you can almost use that momentum to manifest these expectations that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to achieve. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And the other, the other part that I, that I just, that I just thought when you, with, with that example uh, is that if, if you're short game something, then it, you know, it goes up, which could have very likely happened up 10 X or something. And they just, issue shares at that price and they get a ton of liquidity. If your original thesis was, this is going to go bankrupt in the next two years. I mean, that's, that's down exactly. the drain, right? Like that, that's not going to happen anymore. And that's reflexivity as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's so easy. It's so easy to use this reflexivity, like on the downside, but in, in some of these cases, like higher share prices create, can create a potentially yeah, much better. For sure. Exactly. Let's go into the ignored gems section, which I think is just super fascinating. You had a thread on these. Um, they're for the most part serial serial acquirers. That's pretty yeah. tough to say. Um, and these are companies. <laughs> these, these are these are companies that generate gobs of cash doing for the most yeah. part boring type things it's not flashy tech um and pretty active in MA. so walk us through some of these examples that you have in the thread and then and then outline to us why why these are ignored in general and then and then what what maybe you can do to to not necessarily ignore these because they are in fact compounders at the end of the day yeah no absolutely you look at their at their track record it's uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible and yeah so I've included I didn't, I mean I included four names so far I've been kind of adding every every couple of days the the, four, the first four that I that I put in in the thread uh, they're all industrials actually not to say that that's the only uh, sort of sector that would go that will go into this I can actually talk about a few other examples that that are not on the thread but um, yeah so some people may have heard of, of some of these names but they they definitely don't get as much attention as they as they should if you look at their at their track record. So one example is is Amatech. So Amatech is is basically these are industrial conglomerates, right? And they mm -hmm. they, they make uh, electronic instruments and electromechanical uh, devices. They've done over eighty acquisitions since uh, since two thousand. Basically, deployed one hundred percent of the of their free cash flow into acquisitions. Sometimes they'll issue. You know some debt for for the larger ones, but essentially it gets it gets paid paid off after a few years. Um, so yeah, I mean it's compounded at at nineteen percent over the past ten years. Uh, trades at twenty two times forward pre cash flow at least on on that day when I did that out. Uh, ROIC is sixteen percent. That's including intangibles and and goodwill. And if you net that out, sort of to strip out. The, and look at the core business. It's it's a hundred percent. The the other one is is pretty similar. It's uh, Amphenol. Uh, so they make uh, connectors, cables, uh, sensors. It's it's the company that's you can think of it almost like a the hardware and and uh, the veins of of the um, Internet of Things, right? Yeah. So anything electronic based and that it's sending a signal is no matter how small it is, they'll they'll have um, a, a pretty decent exposure to that, and it's across all end markets that you can that you can imagine. So, yeah, ten year KGAR here twenty four percent. They've bought fifty companies in the last ten years. ROIC of eighteen percent. Our ROIC uh, tangible ROIC eighty percent. Uh, another recent one that this is actually a really small company. 
I had heard of it. I don't remember where, but some people have talked about this before because it's it's there. It's one of those stories that may be just getting started. So in terms of size, it's it might be a little bit more interesting. It's called Judges Scientific. So this one is based in the in the UK, and they've actually only done acquisitions in the in the UK. Market cap is five hundred million pounds. Uh, they've done nineteen acquisitions in total. They paid around four times EBIT, which is crazy, but they're buying companies at the 3 million level, right? So it's very, very small acquisitions. And what are they and, buying again? Oh yeah, so they, they, they do scientific, industry, scientific instruments. So things okay. like fire testing, uh, material, material testing. Um, these are very like niche uh, specific markets that you have, you, you have like an oligopoly there, three, yeah. four players, because because they're so small and there's a certain amount of, of R&D that takes to, to, you know, to pick up and get to, to a certain level where the, you know, in terms of, of the tech aspect to it, right. it just makes sense for anyone else to try to disrupt that, right? Yeah. And, um, and that's usually what many of these uh, industrial serial acquirers tend to, tend to focus on. And coincidentally, Constellation Software, which I can talk about a little bit, later that they do basically the same thing, but on the software side, right? So yeah, so judges is, is a very, it's a very interesting one. And again, it's, they're much smaller. They trade at a higher uh, free cash flow multiple. It's probably around 30 times, but yeah, since 2005, they've compounded at 33%, which is pretty insane. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. And the, the last one I tweeted out today, um, this, this one actually, uh, Full disclosure: I, I bought shares last year. Uh, this is this is Teledyne. Some people may have heard of the name if you if you read The Outsiders. This one I think might be the one that surprises me the most because a lot of people love the history of it because of Henry Singleton. He's been you know praised by not the out not only The Outsiders but Leon Black has talked about him a lot and and sorry, Leon Cooperman, not, not Leon Black. Uh, and Buffett also has, has praised sort of his capital allocation abilities. But that was in the 70s. This company is still public. It was actually, it IPO'd in, in, in 2000 and it's compounded at 20% KGAR since, since then. So they make uh, products across the board. It's uh, digital imaging. Uh, so things like cameras, uh, infrared cameras, uh, you know, microwave technology that goes on satellites, uh, instrumentation for marine and environmental markets. Uh, they have some decent uh, aerospace and defense uh, exposure as well. And yeah, they're pretty active on, on, on the M&A. They actually, the last acquisition they made almost doubled their size uh, and it's getting integrated right now as we speak, which I think pr actually provided a pretty interesting en entry point because it was was kind of skeptical of it. These are such cool businesses that you would just never, I mean, Teledon, obviously, I think you think of, but if, if you're in the value investor community, but the, uh, like the judges one to me is, is cool. Like I love the smaller type, unknown, just quiet generating yeah. 33 what'd you say 33 percent kagers or something it's 33 yeah. <laughs> 33 yeah. i mean that's world class that's 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 world class it's insane. yeah when you yeah, look sure. at, when you when you look at these companies whether they're ignored gems in in particular um 
what are what are some of the biggest takeaways from these? Like if there's a if there's a common thread, is it is it like the multiple that they pay for the businesses? Is it the industries they're in? I mean, they're all industrials, right? So maybe that's kind of something there. Or is it is it something in the management teams where you just see this thread of of management that seems smart that knows how to make a creative acquisitions? Yeah, I think it's it's all of the points that, that you mentioned to, to some extent. I think management is very important and, and the track record as, as well. They are, you know, they're, they are buying businesses in, in general. Uh, they're buying quality businesses. When, uh, when they reach a certain size and they have to naturally start buying bigger businesses to actually move the needle, uh, the multiples start to to step up, right? So that's why I mentioned judges paying four times EBIT. That's because they're buying these really small businesses. But then if you go to sort of the other side of the of the spectrum in you know Amitec, Amphenol, and, and Teledyne, they actually have pretty similar market caps. Yeah, you're you're talking about you know probably fifteen to twenty times um, EBITDA is usually what they what they quote on on some of these acquisitions. What I think they're really good at is um, you know, they know the assets really well. Sometimes I know the Teledyne management has been following the, the, the most recent acquisition that they announced here, Fleur. They've been in touch with them for the past 15 years or something. So they knew the asset really well. Um, there is a debt component to that, right? At that point where you can issue that at really attractive levels where you can afford to pay sort of, you know, a seemingly high multiple that, you know, if if the if the company gets sort of integrated in in uh in, in, in the way that management expects them to in terms of the synergies, et cetera, and you you know you're financing a lot of that through debt, it's very accretive to the equity holders, right? Yeah. And and I think these companies are really good at 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 doing that. Some of them are more decentralized than others. We can it's it's interesting when you look at at serial acquires because there's there's this spectrum of integration uh, across across different companies some you know buffett obviously being the prime example of you know one end of the spectrum well he'll buy it and he'll he won't even like he won't touch it he'll it has to have management in place it does he he maybe talks to them once a year and something like that but right. then you have on the on the other side of the spectrum you have Companies uh, like um, yeah, like Teledyne and and, and Amatec probably too, where where they're integrating uh, a lot, right? They're cutting costs. They're they might change management if they if they have to. They'll you know they'll cancel software vendors and integrate them with their with their back with their back office systems, etc. So um, yeah, so the track record is is super is, is super important. I think the the other part is is that when you find one of these companies and you become quite comfortable with with you know the the business that they that they have the businesses that they're buying and sort of the the runway that they have ahead of them which comes down to you know organic growth at the at the core level and yeah. how much they can deploy in acquisitions right i think you can get away with paying a seemingly high multiple and still do really well Mm -hmm. Right. And um, it's it's hard to say exactly what that multiple is, but because there's obviously all different sorts of, of uh, variables that, that go into what, you know, what what turns out to be the the, the, the the intrinsic value growth of the business over over the long term. But um, but yeah, I mean, you, you could have paid 30 times for 
for for some of these for some of these companies any of the of the of the ones i've mentioned then and, and you would have done really well even mm-hmm. with the multiple you know cutting off 10 10 10 turns which is basically you know like a 33% headwind but at the same time you had cash flows compounding on such a high rate that that your outcome was still really satisfactory right so um it's yeah it's it's one of those things where i think you have to understand the the, the value drivers really really well and I'll, one more thing I'll, I'll say yeah because i was i was victim to this at, at first again just having come from a from a more traditional value investing school is i pull up the charts for some of these companies and just look at the exponential growth that they that they had on the stock price and i was yeah. my first reaction was i'm not gonna touch this like i missed this like there's this is expensive right yeah now i kind of flipped that on its head and i say wow that this is incredible these guys are creating so much shareholder value they're probably going to keep doing so right yep. so i've kind of changed my mind on that and i'd probably touch one of these if they were down you know 50 60 percent my first question would be what the hell happened right like what right. where did management fuck up right so yeah that i think that's Kind of interesting uh, part to to note out as well. Yeah, you've seen a lot of you've seen a lot of people discuss charts on Twitter recently. Uh, a lot of it's for the downside. I think it was Paul Enright yeah. today. I saw him tweet about, and and obviously I agree with this as someone that uses charts. But you know, like it or not, people use charts as as a way to gauge fund flows and 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 if they're gonna go right. into a, go you know go into a stock and go out of a stock and. And uh, that's that's something I've I've internalized a lot more is using stock price as a filter again because if 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 a stock has had re- or has had past success and you know it's compounded at a pretty good rate um, and 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 again this tends to be maybe more of like the predictable type businesses where if if if, if you've seen a history yeah. about performance um, that's usually a good indicator that you've got maybe an above average business. Um, and, yep, and, exactly. and like you said, if, if, if the stock has done nothing, but just trade below its moving average as it declines over decades, well, then you ask yourself like, okay, like there's been enough time. So many eyeballs have been on this. Like, what am I going to bring to the table that all these people in the graveyard that have tried to buy this thing haven't looked at? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and these can, that's, that's the last thing I'll, I'll mention these sometimes these will trade you know, cheap, quote unquote, for very long periods of time, which is to say that they traded at 20, 25 times the whole time. But if they were compounding at 20%, that, that 20 times earnings in, you know, five, 10 years ago was incredibly cheap, right? So yeah. that's kind of another way to think about it. As you look at your 2021 year-end review, this is you know where we'll discuss uh, Berkshire and and and, and Spotify uh, kind of takes yeah. on here, but you've looked back on 2021. What were some of the mistakes that you made this year on an investing side of things? Yeah, so it's I think it's hard to to obviously just on a on a on a on such a short time frame, right? But uh, kind of putting putting that thought out there, I I would say. Um, I would say there were two. Uh, the, the first one was, so I, I had a position in, uh, in BSTH. So that was Pershing Square Taunting Holdings. So yep. the, the, spark, the spark from, from Bill Ackman. <laughs> um, so that was an example where uh, 
so yeah, they, they were, I'm sure a lot of people have heard it, know the story behind this, right? But they, Bill Ackman announced that he was, he was going to buy Universal Music at a, yep. what I thought was a very attractive price. Yeah. And uh, the transaction had a very complex structure that I don't think I spend enough time thinking about that structure, whereas I focused way too much on what the, what the business that he was going to buy, yeah. which was going to be, I think, like 40% of the value of that, of, of that vehicle, right? But I thought, you know, that there's, there's such, so much value here in terms of what, what we're getting uh, that I was pretty quick to, to buy, that, buy the stock to get exposure to, to, to Universal. Uh, that was actually a, a very clear example of, um, it, it, from, from the sense of, of that company specifically, I, I had, you know, I had already built confidence in terms of the industry where I didn't have to spend as much time thinking about that. And I just kind of, you know, learned about the company, saw mm -hmm. the, the financials, et cetera. And I'd made a pretty quick decision. I felt comfortable enough. Obviously the, all the deal fell through because the SEC wasn't, wasn't comfortable with, uh, with the transaction for reasons I'm, I'm not going to get into. We could do a podcast on this uh, <laughs> as, because it's, it's pretty, it's pretty complex, but, but yeah, I, I guess I just, I, I didn't think about that risk uh, in, enough, right? So that's probably a lesson there to really understand sort of the underlying structure if you're getting into some of these uh, more complex situations, because at the end of the day, this was sort of a special situation trade where I thought I was spying a quality asset at a cheap price. So I would say that was that was one. The, the other one was actually back from in 2020 is where it's, it started because uh, Right, uh, I think it was in in April, late April, maybe May, or right after right after the, the market started uh, recovering really quickly. Uh, I I shorted some some SPY. I had never shorted before. It was mm -hmm. and this was like my first uh, outright short. Uh, part of it was, you know, I want to I want to see what this feels like, right? Like I. I, I want to see if I'm if I'm built for this or, or not, and it was a it was a very it was a very small position, but obviously at you know with with that in mind, I also thought it was going to be a really good trade because I yeah, like many people, I thought this this thing is is you know we're almost back to to the levels we were before, and there's we there's this whole everything's shut down and there's a crazy pandemic going on and businesses yep. are 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 going bankrupt, etc. So I had this entire thesis that obviously never played out so um yeah like later that year i started you know covering some of that some of that short but i, I didn't cover the whole thing until um early uh, early last year so early 2021 which was i mean I'm, I'm glad i didn't wait even longer because i think the market moved another 20 percent higher after yeah. after that so uh yeah it was i mean in some ways it was kind of a macro trade um, I learned that I'm not, you know, and I'm also not fit at all for, for, for shorting. It's just not, it's just not, not my game. I think there was way too much brain damage, even considering it was such a small position for me. But, um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't think I regret it. I learned something. Uh, it was, uh, it wasn't that expensive a lesson in that sense, but, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, I would say those, those two. What were some things that you achieved during during the year that you wanted to work on heading into that year where you maybe set some goals whether it was personal or again investing research process related that you actually hit yeah during that year yeah so por portfolio wise i 
I definitely cleaned up some some stuff. Um, I, I'd say it definitely tilted towards higher quality as the year kind of went by. Uh, big part of it was, I mean, one one part of it was was this 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 short being being covered, but I also I pulled out of uh, of of a auto OEM that I had held for a couple of years. It actually worked out fine. Um, mm-hmm. It was still really cheap multiple bases, but yeah, I just I I I kind of just took a step back and I said, you know, this may or may work because it was it's uh, Stellantis, right? It's the merger of, of Fiat and 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 Peugeot. Yep. And part of it was kind of an integration play where I thought the management team was gonna cut costs and maybe that's gonna cost a re-rating. But I don't yeah. know. I just I think I didn't have enough confidence and I also wasn't following this this industry closely enough where I where I you know, where I said, where I could say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty confident on this. So I just said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sell this. And it's pretty funny because I, I think I, I saw that at probably five or six times earnings and I bought another company at, at, at like 20 times. So that was, may have been the, that one last piece of kind of the, the value investor in me that, that uh, died that day. <laughs> um, so that was, that was, uh, that, that was, that was one, I think, uh, yeah. So I good about the, my, my portfolio as it is now in the sense that I, I really like the, you know, following all the companies I, I own and I'm just, right. yeah, it just, it just feels just going back to what I was saying, just feels like a game by now that it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's really fun. And I'd, I'd say this, the other one would be, um, Probably on the on the music industry side, I I had been studying it for a few years, but I think it was probably early last year or maybe mid mid last year where I got to that point. Um, maybe even related to what we were talking about in terms of where you think you get to to that certain level of of of, of knowledge that it's kind of a gut feeling and yep and uh, yeah so I did a lot of work on it and I I put out a big piece on 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 Substack on on music royalties that uh, helped me also get a really good understanding of of how that really complex world works so yeah I was glad to get to a, to a point where I thought I. I knew enough to understanding. I had enough of an understanding in terms of how this industry works, and how the money flows, and and all the value, the, the entire value chain, and all the players to to really build up that conviction. Um, partly, I mean, originally it was mostly Spotify related, and um, eventually it, it was Universal, which is a, a smaller position. I did buy it again when they IPO'd. It's like thirty five percent higher than what Ackman got it for, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I still thought it was there was some good value to that as well. Um, so I would say those those things. Yeah. Now, if you look ahead to 2022, what are some ways um, that you want to improve? Maybe some skills that you want to compound on that again, like would would be would be worth mentioning for other investors like myself that that want to get better. Yeah, for sure. I think. You know, portfolio construction is is one that uh, I've always struggled with, and I'm definitely not the only one. I know a lot of people spend a lot of time on this, but I've I, I have spent time on it. I think I've gotten a little bit better, but it's one of those where I don't think you ever get to a point where you said, "Okay, I'm I'm an expert on this. I don't have to learn yeah. anymore." It's it's definitely an evolving process. So that's kind of an, an easy one in that in 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 that sense. Something that I've been spending a little bit more time on recently 
more just in terms of, of, of thinking about it is really trying to understand and, and define uh, culture as it relates to, to a company. Hmm. Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's one of those terms kind of similar to conviction, honestly, that just gets thrown around a lot, but there's, there's not much, it's really hard to pinpoint, right? Like it's, it's, it's pretty interesting because there's actually some interesting parallels there to, to, the, to this other topic, but it also varies a lot between, between companies. Right, you don't. I don't. I don't want. I don't want the same culture uh, in that that Spotify has to be in in Teledyne, for example. Like <laughs> that would probably be be a mess, yeah. right? Um, you, don't, you don't want anyone in a in a in a manufacturing plant spending ten or fifteen percent of their time doing you know pet projects and 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 building out stuff on on their own. It's kind of the the, the tech mentality, right? Right. Um, but but yeah, I just I, I, I want to spend I want to spend more more time on it. It's it's tough. I think a lot of it is kind of talking to learning about management, obviously, and how they think, but also talking to to the employees of the of the company, and and yeah, all those things that kind of hard to pinpoint. But I think once you get to a certain point, you might be like, you know, there's something really special here, right? Mm-hmm. And especially for really long term investments, if you think you know, if you want to hold something for you know, kind of decade plus, I think that's really going to be the driver and they, right? Yeah. And that's that, that last point you mentioned is, is, is important because if you're not buying for long-term, like even if you're a position trader or maybe an investor that thinks in like, you know, one to three years, then like you don't necessarily need to worry about the culture of the business per se, because that, you know, you're, you're, again, you're thinking very long-term there. Like it doesn't matter if the culture, is going to change in year one, you know, to year three. I don't, I don't think cultures necessarily change um, that quickly. Um, but no, exactly. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure it, there it are takes examples a long where, where yeah, they, it takes a lot of time to build, uh, to build it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say, actually, I, I think I might be wrong. I think it takes a long time to build a culture, but it's very quick to destroy a culture. So I think, I think in that instance, um, I may be wrong, right? It's almost like it's almost like your reputation. Like you spend your whole life building up this reputation, and you could do one one thing wrong to one person, and then your reputation soiled. Yeah, I think as it as it relates to the especially to the individual, if you're talking top management and, and things like that, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, when you when it comes to like a corporation and and just a, a collection of of many people working together towards a mission or a goal or whatever it, it may be a little more sticky but yeah, yeah it's, it's okay. interesting i mean it's yeah and then speaking of cultures we have to touch on berkshire um there was <laughs> yeah. there was there was actually let's 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 start here there was there was a tweet i forget who it was might have been ho nam that tweeted out something about you know berkshire's culture and my, you know, my, my first inclination, I think I even tweeted this out as a, as a reply, but like, I just don't necessarily think there's like this culture in the same way that you would say, you know, like Spotify has a culture, right. And Berkshire seems like a bunch of di- disaggregated yeah. conglomerates doing, doing their own thing for the most part. So I don't necessarily agree that there's like this culture there, but maybe there is, I'm, I'm probably wrong. Um, the question I, the question I want to ask you is and 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 this goes this this relates to culture but would berkshire still be a top position in your portfolio 
with Buffett and Munger gone? And this is from uh, Forward Cap on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, I saw that that question. I thought it was it was a good one. Uh, hopefully not anytime soon, but the the answer is yes. I I would I would I would still hold it. I'm of the view that these days, especially now that Berkshire hasn't done any like big acquisition, I think it's a company that just does its own thing. And and yes, like Buffett is there, you know, and yeah, he bought Apple, and of course, it's it's it, like it's it would be an incredible loss from a from a capital allocation standpoint. But I think what they've built over the over the past fifty plus years or whatever is is pretty powerful. And I'm talking specifically kind of on the HQ level because, as you say, right. you know. I mean, Seas Candies will have its own culture and uh, Precision Caspars will have an entirely different culture. Like there's, yeah, it, it, it will be stupid to assume that this whole Berkshire thing gets, you know, um, thrown out at, at, thrown down to all the other uh, subsidiaries. But right. but I think, you know, the, the, the capital allocation will be, will, will be really, you know, above average. And uh, I think it makes sense in terms of, of what he's planned uh, for, for, for succession in terms of creating the operating roles from the, from, from the capital allocation and, you know, insurance still having that, that this very, very big, big role and, and, you know, Berkshire Hathaway Energy as, as well. End of day, I, I, I don't think that's going to change my assumption that Probably grows at a at a ten percent rate, sort of annually in, in terms of intrinsic uh, intrinsic value. And considering the the risks to that ten percent growth, I think it's it's um it's a very it's a very attractive company. Um, I was actually working a little bit on updating the, the valuation on it recently, and I was I think I actually yeah, I tweeted it out kind of a simple model that I had, and I I was talking to a few people, most of most people arrive to some sort of discount to the intrinsic value, whether that be 20%, 30%. Some people may argue it's even higher. Uh, I think the, the, the broader point is, is that if it keeps doing its thing of, of compounding that intrinsic value, even if discount doesn't close, it's, it's still a pretty satisfactory outcome, right? Um, again, going back to the risks that are associated with, with, with the company, right? You're not really taking that much that much risk. Now, something that I've started to seriously think about Berkshire in terms of just my portfolio allocation and uh, and how I think about it going forward, because uh, I do have a, a it's my it's my biggest position that one in Spotify. Depending on the on the day, uh, <laughs> one will be bigger than the other one. But yeah, I, obviously, with what's happened more recently, we could we could say Berkshire is the bigger one now. But <laughs> but um, but yeah, I I almost think of it as as a really good cash alternative, and that may sound silly in some yeah. ways, but the way the, the nuance to that to to, to that is it's almost like an opportunity cost in some sense. If I am, if I'm seeing, you know, something really attractive that I think can do, you know, 15% plus with, with some decent, you know, what, what I would think is, is a relatively low risk, or maybe it's 20, but you know, there's a higher risk of it, not um, um, the, the actual downside scenario playing out. It's right. 
probably something I'd be comparing it to. And and uh, I actually did this. Uh, I think yeah, it was this week. I I sold a little bit of, of Berkshire, and I mm-hmm. and I bought some some Constellation software. And I thought, and I thought that you know in the next seven to ten years, Constellation is probably going to outperform. So it was just a simple as simple as as, as that. Um, oh, I might probably add to Berkshire if it sells off and, and and whatnot. But I think I'll probably always have a core holding on it. Let's keep this Twitter Q and A thread going. Babic wants to know uh, what's the evolution of the podcast advertising market. How big can it get? That's that's a pretty loaded question. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if it if it makes sense to to just tackle that directly or or maybe talk a little bit about Spotify before we can transition from one to the other. Yeah, why don't you I'm, why don't you, I'm, I'm why don't you touch a, what yeah, why don't you just touch on the Spotify thesis and then dive into how how that question fits in to where Yeah, exactly because going. it's it's very it's become a much bigger part of the story yeah. uh, especially especially over the past year. So, you know, the 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 very simple kind of one-liner investment thesis for for Spotify to me is that it's the only scaled global audio platform um, which has a shot to getting at one plus billion users and it trades at 40 billion, okay? Uh, I thought it was interesting because I tweeted out a few weeks ago, uh, what, are, what are some companies that have a, a real shot of, of getting, getting to or surpassing one billion users mm-hmm. that trade below hundred billion? And I think I got like two responses besides Spotify. Uh, some people it? said Uber. Okay. Some people said Uber and the other people said, and this might be a stretch. Like people said, this is probably a stretch. They said match. Yeah. Match but is was, probably was, a stretch. But yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty much that that was it. Some people were saying like Airbnb and they were like, and then they were, oh no, I realized that's already above hundred. So uh, I thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, you know, thought exercise to, 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 to do because obviously that's no way to value a company, but yeah. it's one way to say, you know, there's something interesting here. Now there's clearly a very well laid out bear case to, to, to Spotify, right? The main, the main two um, of, of opposing views are first that the labels have too much power and they'll never let them make money. And yep. the second one is that, there's a lot of tech competition and these other guys are basically subsidizing the music because they have a bigger bundle and they, they just don't care about it. Right. right. Uh, so I've spent enough, enough time to become comfortable with, with both of those. And I actually think the data is pretty strong that the, this is not the case. And we have slowly started to see some, some hints of, of that turning. So to transition that it, into the podcast question so we all know that that spotify originally is known for for its music service but a little over three years ago it is actually pretty funny they uh one of the deals that they had with the labels in germany uh i I think that specific label had some like audiobooks or podcasts in their in their music catalog so they just said oh let's put them in spotify and we'll monetize them as well and, and Spotify saw the data and, and this was before there was a UI for, for podcasts. This is like a purely, you know, there was purely a music streaming company yep. and they were just really impressed with, with 
the amount of people that started listening to those, right? Like right. actually making the effort to 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 find that. So they said, you know, let's let's give this let's give this a try. So they kind of made the pivot slowly to become what is now known as an audio first company, and and really made podcasting uh, a priority. And impressively, I think they became the number one podcast platform in in the U.S. and I think it's like sixty other countries already. So they passed uh, Apple Podcasts. Yeah. And uh, now I think they've gotten to a point where the potential of the advertising market in, in podcasting is is starting to show in the in the numbers, right? And and the whole idea is that podcast advertising is is a business that labels don't touch, right? So that's separated from the from the labels agreement, and it's much it's much higher margin, gross margins for for muse for premium music, gross margins are just below thirty percent. And for podcasts, I, there's right now it's kind of funky to to measure them because they've they've laid out a lot of upfront uh, investments for, on the like licensing deals and building out original content. But steady state is probably a fifty plus margin gross margin business on the podcasting side, which explains why they're why they're so focused on it. Now the whole idea behind it is that radio is still a massive massive market that. It's basically one of the last sort of legacy media that hasn't been really, really interrupted by 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 the internet, right? It's yeah. it, it's still, yeah. So I mean, billions of people listen to to radio for a couple hours, couple hours a day. It's a forty billion dollar market globally in terms of of advertising, and podcasting, you know, has been around for a really long time, but there's never been the proper ad tech stack built to it right so obviously you, you you obviously know this as well that most advertising in, in in podcast is is a host red ad which means the host has to find the advertiser and sort of deal with all that all that pain of of yeah. you know okay how much how much am i going to get paid and wh- where am i saying yeah so that, that that whole process right so the the idea what Spotify is, is trying to, to do is what, what is known as uh, streaming added search, which is essentially bringing those internet level capabilities of advertising to, to podcasting, where instead of you reading, you know, reading the same ad to the same listeners, you'll say, you know, place an ad in these two parts of the podcast and Spotify, depending on, on the, the, the person that's listening, because they have, you know, some data, that it's pretty valuable about you can serve you all sorts of different ads, uh, basically live, right? Like it, mm-hmm. it depend, um, even on the, um, on the time that you're listening to this, to, to, to this podcast. And there's not really anyone else doing this at scale. Uh, Pandora and, and iHeart have sort of built something as well on that side, but they also target another, a completely different demographic. Uh, Apple Podcasts has nothing, nothing here. They they don't really do advertising, and uh, I think where it gets really interesting, it, it's not only taking share from from radio, but actually becoming part of the a hundred to to two hundred billion digital advertising market, right? The Googles and the and the Facebooks of the world, because what they want to do essentially is aggregate all these all these podcasts, uh, where even if you have you know, 10 or 20 listeners, you will, you will be able to have that inventory available where they can serve that ad and, uh, and they'll share the monetization with you, basically 50, 50 share. 
And I guess one of the issues there, just from that perspective, is if there's if there's a rev share, how much I guess how much will it make sense for a podcaster to give up that revenue um, where they could just go out and get and get all of it themselves, right? And 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 I guess right. it's going to come down to friction and 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 is it worth that? Yeah, it's there's there's certainly a math equation there, and you know, broad strokes, it's basically can I get can I can my net sort of take home be higher even accounting for Spotify's uh, right. take share? Uh, and so far, the the results are are pretty encouraging. Uh, a lot of people have started, you know, have doing this, and and the, the CPMs have. Uh, some cases interesting, but I think the, the other added benefit, uh, which has to be taken into consideration, and um, I'd love to get your take here as well, because it, it's actually, you know, you're obviously you're a podcaster, and I've chatted to a few people about this, but uh, from my understanding, it's kind of a pain to deal with, with the whole sort of back office advertising part. And if you basically outsource that to Spotify and you just focus on creating content, there's also a value to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they're, they're, they're definitely don't take is. care of everything. Yeah. 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 And, and so at that point, it's what kind of take rate can they get reasonably? Um, Cause if it's, if it's 50, 50 now, I wonder if that over time just declines at some point. Um, to where, you know, they're kind of making it, I guess, you know, the whole making up in volume where they're getting so many more, um, percentages of people's revenues from from ads that they're that they're willing to take less of a take rate. Maybe I think they've proven to be creator friendly. I mean, if you think about if you think about YouTube, and they wouldn't share any any ad revenue with with the, the creators. I think mm-hmm. eventually you had to like reach a certain level or whatever. But Spotify is doing it kind of on off off the start, and what. What I think is important here is, is as well is there's, uh, if you look back historically, sort of the, the, the history of the, of the internet, there is a huge, not a huge lag, but there is a lag to the amount of time people spend in say, you know, internet media or, or search or, or, or watching videos online and, and things like that to that sort of proportional time being reflected on the spend, right? And right now, discrepancy between podcasting and how much advertising is spent is something ridiculous, right? It's part of the the most under-monetized media. I think it's something like 35% or 40% of the population is listening to a podcast once a month or or once a week. I I forget off the top of my head, but it's something pretty pretty substantial that's also increasing. So there will be a point in time if advertisers become really interested on this that it's just going to become one more you know pocket where they're where they're putting uh, ad dollars and something really interesting happened this morning uh, uh, Spotify released uh, uh, there was a press release where they they're rolling out performance-based advertising for the first time in podcasting where now it's not only you're getting that ad inserted um, according to you know there's a lot of targeting behind that but now you actually have a link where 
um, if you have the, your phone open, you will be able to click it. If you were only listening, you when you pick up your phone and then go back to the app after you finish the podcast, you'll still have that available. So I think that also changes the, the landscape. Uh, if that works out, I mean, the, the potential TAM could be much bigger mm -hmm. <laughs> in theory, right? So it's still early days, but, you know, so far the, the signs have been pretty encouraging in terms of what they've been able to to, to, uh, to achieve. Let's say things go right and your thesis for the most part plays out as you expect. What's the, what's the, what's the size of the prize there? I mean, you mentioned Spotify. I don't know what their current market cap is, but what's, what's the size of it's of 40. Yeah. So enterprise value, which is kind of what I look at mostly is, is around 40 billion. Okay. Um, so in in my kind of most probable outcome, if we go back to some of the uh, yeah the, the 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 topics we were we were talking about before in in terms of, of conviction, so I I think first of all I think they're gonna they're gonna surpass one billion users over the over the next ten years in my in my base case. Um, I think they're gonna build this uh, advertising business to a, a substantial size. So call it you know. 10 plus billion billion dollars of high margin dollars mm -hmm. uh, that should also that should also help their their music business both on the premium and the and the and the ad supported side so i think they'll they'll have some pricing power as well on the on the subscription side which is going to help their their margins they've already started pricing raising prices in in the in the us and other markets actually and it's worked out pretty pretty well there's a couple of other initiatives that are going on. Some of them are really early to, to judge, but there's one that's kind of starting to, to get some, some decent size where they basically serve as, a, as an advertising promotional, um, that, that they're, they're, they, they're letting the labels uh, promote or, or advertise uh, artists, whether that be a right. single or an album. And just because they know what you listen to, it, you know, if your favorite artist is, is John Mayer and he puts out a new single, they say, hey, listen to this and you'll click it, right? Yep. And the labels, they're started playing around with some things like that. And I think there's a lot more strings that they can pull once they get to a certain level of, of scale. So if we think broadly what this could mean for, for the revenues at, at that size, I wouldn't be surprised if, if this is a 70 or $80 billion business down the line with uh, close to 40% gross margins and uh, operating income in the 12 to 14%. So that's, you know, kind of put all those together. It's, it's close to a 250 billion valuation, depending on kind of what multiple you, you, you put on, on that. And if you discount that back to today, that's probably, you know, 80 to 9 million in, in present value. So sort of twice what, what it's worth right now. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how I think about it. Got it. Yeah. The, the product itself is, is so impressive and the curation and the personalization that goes in, that's one of the biggest things that I, that I lean on with this, with this product is the, the stickiness is so much higher than people think. Um, yeah. Because I'm not, I'm not going to go to another app when Spotify has curated my taste so well 
that yeah. not only does it give me six different daily mixes that I can use, but it says on every Friday, hey, here are some releases that you may have missed right. from artists that you've listened to in the past. Uh, it's 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 incredible. It's 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 yeah. really good, and I and I and I think they're just getting started with podcasts. I think there's a lot. Yeah. Of there. Um, there's a lot going to be in the on the recommendation and personalization side of podcasting, which should make it even even stronger. And you also have your library built in there, like you, which takes technically years to build. If that's something you're into, I think maybe not everyone, but I have all sorts of albums and playlists saved down. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And then if they can turn into the advertising and do some sort of self-service platform to get ad agencies to just seamlessly, you know, start, start shoveling some ad dollars over there. I mean, it's, it's pretty exciting. The, the, the future you can, you can kind of create. Um, yeah. We've, we've gone an hour and a half, a little bit over actually at this point, but it's been, huh. it's been super fun. Um, I've yeah. actually got, I've actually got dinner waiting for me um <laughs> there so, so it's it's calling nice let's do let's do some last uh some 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 last questions that i ask everybody so first one where can people go to find out more about you uh, make sure you drop your twitter handle and everything like that for all the peeps yeah so, to, so twitter is i'd say is the main place uh, that's at sleepwell tap uh, i also have a, a substack sleepwell.substack com so if you want to check out some of the content as well but but to reach out to me i mean my dms are open so that's yeah that, that, that's available there maybe i'll take some time to respond but I'll, i try to get to all the all the dms eventually what ideas are you looking at right now that have you excited maybe just name name the ideas some stuff that's on your watch list yeah let's pull it up here so i mean judges is one that i that i had worked recently that i think it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. Um, I briefly touched on Constellation software. Uh, we didn't get much into it. Maybe we we can on the next podcast. But yeah. yeah, it's it's got into a place. So that's one I've been kind of following the past few years. And and uh, about a year ago, I I started buying some, and you know, I just kind of kept learning more and more on the way, and really getting comfortable with the story. And it's. It, I've, it's now become a decent position in my in my portfolio. So I'm actually, that's an existing one, but I'm actually pretty pretty excited that it's actually you know it moves it moves the needle here. Um, I was talking to my to my friend uh, um, Fra Francisco Rivera and uh, and Alex from the Signs of Hitting today. I was asking them about Netflix. It's Netflix has been one of my sort of mistakes of of, of omission because uh, I've been. I don't follow it that closely, but I feel like I do understand the business well enough where you know, I, sh I should have probably bought that at, at some point. And, and yeah, it looks interesting. I mean, it's, it's sold off a decent amount, um, just like the chart here. But uh, um, yeah, I'd say those those three at this, at this time. And I'm going skiing next week, so I have to give a shout out to, to Vail Resorts. <laughs> but I own that already. <laughs> I love it. Last question that I ask everybody, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I gotta, I gotta just go back to constellation here. I think it would be incredible to meet Mark Leonard. He's yeah. probably the best capital allocator I've, I've, I've seen. Um, I, my, my last piece actually compares him to Buffett. I think some people got ticked off by that. Uh, it was kind of a joke in some ways, but but yeah, I'd actually, I, I think he would be in, in sit down with. 
Yeah. I remember the time I said Terry Smith was uh I preferred Terry Smith to Warren Buffett and got 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 a little bit heated there. Oh yeah. You can't yeah. come no, after the buff dog. <laughs> it was it was it was fun though. It was all fun. Awesome. Well, sleep well. Thanks so much for coming on the show. This was great. Um I know people are gonna have a lot of fun listening to it. There's ideas that they can take from this and as well as practical philosophical insights on conviction and uh, just research process in general that I know were extremely valuable to me. So thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to doing this again sometime soon. So thanks so much for having me. This was super fun. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.